Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. How long will you go limping about with two different opinions? That was Elijah's question to the people of God. I argue it might be Elijah's question to us today, too. For as much as things change over time, they also have an incredible way of staying the same. History might not repeat exactly, but it definitely rhymes. How long will you go limping with two different opinions? For the purposes of our teaching time this morning, it's important to understand some historical context here. I'm going to teach today. You're welcome. Ahab and Jezebel, they were the monarchs of the northern kingdom of Israel around the mid-800s BCE. So you got to throw your minds back about a little more than 2,500 years. The people of God had long since been divided, the northern larger kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they got along like oil and water. Never mind the near constant threats from outside countries and encroaching empires. Omri, the previous king of the north, Game of Thrones reference, had established a powerful dynasty and made Israel into a major regional power. He built an impressive new capital, the strategically located town of Samaria in central Palestine which increased his control of land trade and provided good access to the Mediterranean. Omri ended a bloody war with the southern kingdom of Judah, and he established friendship with the Phoenician power of Tyre. Omri sealed this alliance by marrying his son and heir, Ahab, to the Tyrian princess Jezebel. From a political and economic position, this was all very good governance and leadership. So picking up where his father left off, Ahab continues the trajectory of establishing a stable government, something no previous northern king had been able to do. After his father had ended the long war with the southern kingdom of Judah, Ahab established a period of peace with them. Furthermore, he created a small empire by enacting tribute from the kingdom of Moab. Ahab was a great builder and apparently maintained the most significant force of charioteers in the entire region. Ahab's kingdom was prosperous, literate, secure, and strong. Fiscally and politically, Ahab and Jezebel were excellent leaders. I, have, I bet you have never heard a preacher say that before. Ahab and Jezebel are the most evil of all the monarchs. That's the version we grew up with. Why? Well, because we, rightfully, tend to focus on the religious problems that their marriage and monarchy created. The biblical attitude towards King Ahab focuses a good deal of its attention on the influences of his wife Jezebel, 
both in toleration of Baal worship and, and allowing her to persecute those of God's prophets who opposed the royal policies. So if you know where to look, you find hints of this in other places in the scripture. Uh, Psalm 45, for example, which is thought by some scholars to be a hymn composed in honor of Jezebel's arrival in Samaria to marry Ahab. It says, listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. The people were actually happy about Ahab and Jezebel's union. They thought that this would provide them even more stability. But there was an undercurrent of concern about her religious background. Forget your people and your father's house. Leave that behind when you come to Israel. But she didn't. She held fast to her religious convictions and practices. Jezebel continues her devotion to Baal and even invites her husband, the king, to join her. And together, they institute the worship of Baal and Asherah on a national scale, erecting places of worship to Baal and disrupting the long-standing exclusive worship of the God of Israel. Stay with me. That was a lot of teaching. So my question is, what's the matter with a little religious pluralism, right? I mean, let's not forget that the northern kingdom was experiencing its most financially prosperous and politically stable era. What's so wrong with letting people worship different deities? It's not hurting anyone, right? Look how well the country is doing. Stay with me. If you've been in church for a while, you might recall hearing this name, Baal. It pops up a lot because it's not really a name, it's more like a title. Baal itself means Lord or Master in Semitic languages. Baal is primarily associated with a group of ancient Semitic deities worshipped in the region at that time, particularly in the context of Canaanite and Phoenician religions. Baal refers to some kind of sovereign god, uh, a king of the universe who is powerful over everything. This is probably the one to pray to, for example, if you're a farmer and you're hoping for some rain. Of course, there was a main character or a lead Baal that people prayed to, but there were lots of little Baals too, as well as Baal place names and Baal people and keychains probably and sub-gods that were Baal-ish, sort of Baal-adjacent. Think of the name Baal less like an individual and more like a generic term, more like a category or brand. According to the writers of what eventually became Holy Scripture, the deeply problematic issue under the rule of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel is that people had simply decided that worshipping the God of Israel, the one true God, was no different than worshipping the Baals. Which, if you recall anything about anything, like, say, the first couple of the Ten Commandments or the Shema, you'll know that this is a big no-no. God is a real stickler about this one. Loyalty and worship were to be exclusive. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord alone. 
But when a multi-year drought came upon the land, the people did what people do. They hedged their bets. The God of Israel doesn't appear to be answering our cries for rain, so I guess we'll go knock on Baal's door. Maybe he will have another option for us. There is a Baal who oversees rain and fertility, so that might be a good place to go. As they wrestled with the economic depression caused by the drought, the people began offering sacrifices to different gods, hoping that if one didn't help them, then another god might. They spread out their loyalties, hoping that some divine being might be able to help them return to their lives of prosperity and security, like a theological safety net. Oh, you're feeling it now. Here it comes. This is the problem. Enter the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 18 begins thusly. After, and once the phone is off. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year of the drought. Three years. I wonder if something else lasted three years recently. Saying, go present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to King Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Now when the king saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Oh, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered back, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and so has your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. That part makes more sense now, right? Like I had to give you a bit of history and context. Ahab blamed this haughty, self-righteous prophet of God, of Yahweh, for triggering the drought. But Elijah spits right back at him, no way, buddy, this is your doing. You and your father before you who went soft on the exclusive worship of God. You have caused this. So Elijah demands a showdown. Have all Israel assemble at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Fine, thought King Ahab. Whatever it takes to get you off my back. So Ahab sent, sent to all the Israelites and told them to assemble the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said to them, how long will you go about limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. The people to whom Elijah spoke were double-minded at least. They worshipped the Lord, but they also worshipped other gods and idols. They spread out their loyalty in order to retain or regain a sense of stability and prosperity in the land. How long, Elijah says, are you going to go around limping with two different opinions? Church history doesn't repeat necessarily, but man, does it rhyme. I would argue that we are not unlike the people of Elijah's day, living in a land of prosperity and safety, Worshipping both the Lord and other lesser gods. It's a common practice among us still. On Sunday, we say that the Lord will provide for us. But the rest of the week, 
Our trust is in the health of stock markets, pension plans, and RRSPs, in economies and alliances, in oil and tech industries, staying out of the red and only in the black, or whatever that's about. Alliances with national and foreign governments that, on paper at least, guarantee security, stability, and safety. Sure, on Sunday we worship God, but what about the rest of the time? How long will we go about limping with two opinions? Let me make it more granular so we can really see it. When we are loyal to God, when we worship and live the way the God of creation calls us to live, we are directed to share what we have with the poor and the needy. But, in truth, we do kind of have our eye on that larger house, and it would be awfully convenient to have a second car. When we worship and live the way the God of creation calls us to live, we rejoice that we are free and forgiven, but mm, the rest of the week, we do continue to hold on to a grudge against a coworker or a family member who opposed us during a meeting or talked behind our back. We talk about being theologically progressive or liberal, but fiscally conservative. And yet John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, says, if you have two coats, you better be giving one of those away to someone who doesn't have a coat. Hmm. Jesus talked more about money and economics than any other topic. Any other topic. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. When push comes to shove, you will bend the knee to one and not the other. When push comes to shove, human beings will choose their own well-being over the well-being of their neighbor or the community or the environment. Even though on Sunday or Wednesday night or whenever we worship, we will profess to worship a God who has a preferential option for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. But if we're being honest with ourselves, and this is what the prophets make us do, it's not, do not shoot the messenger here, this is Elijah's doing today. The prophets make us uncomfortable as we do a self-reflect. How long asked Elijah, how long will you go about limping with two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, fine, follow him. Do you know what Elijah did just before he faced the king? If you read back a chapter. He blessed a widow and her son. A widow and her son who were foreigners to him, technically enemies who worshipped differently than him, who lived differently than him. In the throes of a three-year drought, in the throes of economic depression, in the midst of his own poverty and hers, she opened her door to him and he blessed her with food. Where is God in the midst of hardship and trial and a feeling like the ground underneath our feet isn't stable, and our world is not secure. Where is God in that? God is in the midst of the rubble, pouring cool water down a parched throat and sharing the last bit of food in your pantry 
with someone who's hungry. Do you know who would disagree with that? The Baals. Because that is not good policy and it's not good economics. By splitting their religious tickets, as it were, the children of Israel weren't worshiping God in the way God desires. They were going through the motions of worship, but their lives were not an act of worship. Their lives were committed to the security and safety and prosperity of their own homes and their country. The Lord doesn't want to be just one God among many. God wants to be the one and only object of love and worship and devotion. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, obviously, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. But there's a second one, just like it and just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a battle about whose religion is right and whose is wrong. It's about putting all your chips in one place. It's about putting all your chickens in one basket or whatever the next, like, this takes us back to Jan's sermon last week. Choose this day who you will serve. Not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but when you're looking at your bank account, when you are opening your closet, when you are talking with a neighbor, when you see someone on the side of the road living in a tent, choose this day who you will serve then. We already know when you're in this place. What about when you're outside of this place? Will you serve the one who makes demands of you in exchange for the promise of financial, economic, and political security? Or will you serve the God who demands that our lives align with his care first and foremost for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner? These are the questions the prophets make us ask ourselves every single day, and they make us real uncomfy. But they're scripture, and they're inspired for a reason. Because while history doesn't repeat, it certainly does rhyme. Choose this day who you will serve. How long will we go about limping with two opinions? To God be all the glory. Amen. <laughs>